0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before reading today's passage, um, I want to remind you where we've been at in the Book of Galatians. Uh, We've been going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, hopefully the reminder serves you as we look at today's text. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians to help slaves of religion find true freedom in Christ. Now think about that. He wrote with a specific purpose in mind. For those who are slaves of religion, he is trying to help them find freedom in Christ. Galatians was written to people like you and me. Because, let's be honest, right? It's easy to be comfortable, and it's easy to just be religious. You kind of do the song and dance. You just show up uh, Christmas and Easter and call it good or whatever. It's easy to be religious, and it's especially easy to be religious in America, of all places. And uh, Paul needs to remind us, because in religion there is no freedom, there's slavery, The religion, the way Paul is defining it. And freedom is only found in Jesus. And since we began the book of Galatians, Paul is presenting us with binary categories. You're either a slave, it's category one, or you are a son or daughter who is free. Those are the categories. So this morning, as we conclude Galatians 4 and move toward chapter 5, Paul gives another biblical example of why the law, or as I've also said, why our works lead us to slavery. And then conversely, those who have faith in the promise, namely in Jesus Christ, you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are free. So let's read our text this morning and see what God has for us, right? So, Galatians 4, I'll begin in verse 21. And I'm actually going to take it all the way to chapter 5, verse 1. So here's Paul's word for us. Here's God's word written by Paul for us this morning. Tell me. Now again, Paul's continuing to build an argument. Here's another one. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written... That Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren who does not bear! Break forth and cry out loud! you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband now you brothers and sisters like isaac are children of promise but just as at the time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so it is also now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Last verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to admit, there's a lot here. There's a lot of texts that we're going to cover, and uh, it seems to be complicated for various reasons, but we're going to try to unwind What Paul is saying here and what God's word is saying to us this morning, what what God's word is saying to you and what he's saying to Sean Powers. So I'm going to begin by asking a question, and it's going to sound silly. Who is your mother? (laughs) Who is your mother? Now, it sounds silly, coming out of my mouth, even just hearing it sounds silly. Seems random. It's not. We'll get to that in a moment. Could seem arbitrary. But the question is indirectly asked in the second half of Galatians 4. So perhaps I need a back up before going forward. In previous weeks, we have seen how Christians are a part of this great spiritual family, this great spiritual family tree. And the family tree leads back to Abraham. You might remember that Abraham was this great man of faith who God had made a covenant with, right? Uh, God shows up and says, Abraham, um, with you I'm going to make a covenant, I'm going to make a promise, and through you and through your offspring, we're going to see a king. And so Abraham is commended as this great man of faith. And because of his faith, God made him right, righteous. But what about Abraham's wife? Or in this situation, wives? Wives. How how does she or they fit into God's plan to see people free from sin, the law, and free from death? How is Abraham's wife, and we'll be focusing on Sarah and Hagar, and how is Sarah in particular our mother in a spiritual sense, right? What does that all mean for us this morning? That's what we really want to get into. Out of all the sections in the book of Galatians, this passage might come across as the most curious um, Paul is using this curious example to advance his argument about Sarah and Hagar. Um, and to make the example more interesting, Paul allegorizes Sarah and Hagar in order to make a point, right? He says, I'm going to do an allegory here. The way Paul goes about his argument might seem curious, but I want to show you it's thoroughly biblical for Paul. Um Aside from the biblical example, Paul says twice, for it is written, and in verse 30, he says, but what does the scripture say? In the midst of the complexity of this passage, Paul's commitment to the Bible just can't be overlooked. Uh, Paul wants to conclude, wants to continue to advance his argument that the law and your works cannot make you right with God, it cannot save you, by once again going to the Bible. In in the end, Paul is going to show us from the Bible that the road to Christian freedom, do you want to be free? The road to Christian freedom is woven throughout the storyline in the Bible with Christ as kind of the exclamation point. As Paul makes his point, he confronts us with this reality. In this world, in this country, in this state, in this city, in this room, a person is either part of one of two categories either living in freedom and therefore partaking in the promise. That's the first category. Or you're living in in slavery and and therefore an object of God's wrath, his justice because of your sin. Two categories of people who came from different mothers, as it were. And Paul is going to show us why this is the case. So Paul begins... This particular section with a rhetorical question. Everyone kind of knows the answer, but Paul is just going to ask it anyways. Here it is: Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you want to follow all the rules and regulations. You who desire that, do you not listen, or it also do you not hear the law? Paul's question here exposes the lies being preached by false teachers throughout Galatia. Now, you might remember, Galatia is this region where Paul planted churches. He left, false teachers came in, and now lies are being preached. A false gospel was being preached. Paul's argument goes something like this. If you all want to obey the law, how come you are not listening or hearing the law? You want to obey the law, but you have no idea how to understand the law. This example came up to my mind this morning while I was preparing. When we were in the Twin Cities, we we loved Ikea, right? Ikea, like say we had to build a shelf or whatever. And with every Ikea package, you have directions. And in theory, you're supposed to follow those directions in order to build this nice bookshelf. So my fault, many times, you get to the end of the bookshelf and you disregard the directions and you're like, what happened? And to which my wife has choice comments for me. Rightfully so. And and Paul's like, you should know better. You know that if you follow this, what it says. But the fact is, you don't understand it at all. You don't understand it at all. The other way to think about Paul's answer to his rhetorical question is, if you want to be under the law, you know what happens? You actually end up standing outside the gospel of free grace. So for our ears and sensibilities... It goes like this. If you think you can do anything to make yourself right before God, if you think you can get her done or pull up the bootstraps, then you don't understand the gospel of free grace. Once again, we're talking about Paul's primary point in the book of Galatians. If you take away free grace from the gospel, you actually end up taking away the gospel. And that's what the law was doing, adding to... The gospel was taking away grace. Grace would not be grace if if you had anything to do with it at all. I mean, how many churches, I want to be careful and I do want to be respectful, but how many churches have you been a part of where you hear the gospel preached, but implicitly or explicitly there are conditions to your participation in that church to be in that community, like, you got to dress a particular way. you got to, like, use the Christian lingo. You know, the, the church is becoming kind of a country club. You drink the same Kool-Aid. All of this can be adding to the gospel. You want to be here? You want to love Jesus? You need to do these things as well. And Paul is writing to the Galatians because they were adding to the gospel. You need to have faith, and then you need to do these things in order to be justified before God. Paul's point in verse 21 is that if the Galatians knew the law, they would realize the truth of the gospel of of grace through Jesus Christ. To make his point, once again, Paul dials up the Old Testament. And instead of focusing on Abraham, he focuses on his wife, Sarah, and their maidservant, Hagar. So if you've been tracking with me through the book of Galatians, you already know where I'm headed. We're going back to the book of Genesis, because that's the foundation of Paul's entire point. It's predicated upon rightly reading the Old Testament, in particular Genesis. Here's a bit of the biblical history in verses 22 and 23, and then we'll actually look at Genesis. And Paul says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. We're going to have to sort that out. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. So last week Paul presented a relational argument, and as he presented this relational argument, he did so by comparing and contrasting different ideas. He continues this strategy in today's passage, Even in these two verses, we read of two sons, two mothers. In a moment, we'll talk about two covenants and two Jerusalem's. And all this is leading us somewhere. In verses 22 and 23, Paul sets up his argument by reminding the Galatians and us the source of God's promise to save through Christ. Now, while Paul is referencing Genesis, he does not mention everyone by name. So just for sake of clarity, here they are. The two sons are Isaac and Ishmael, and the two women are Sarah and Hagar. Uh, Sarah is the mother of Isaac, and Hagar the mother of Ishmael. So what about the father of these two boys? As we've read, Abraham. So you might remember from Galatians 3 that I spent a lot of time talking about Abraham because, like I said, it was through the seed of Abraham that the promise would come, namely Jesus. Long story short, God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed, and Abraham's faith made him righteous. So too, we are made right with God through faith. Up to this point, we might be thinking to ourselves, Abraham's a really great guy. Like, Hebrews 11 is like, Abraham's a man of faith. How do the kids say it? He gives off the good vibes. Don't even know what that means, but, well, that is about to change a bit we go to Genesis 16, this is Paul's context for making his point. We're pulling the curtain back on Abraham's family life. It'd be like coming to a family with kids, you know, during dinner or when you put the kids to bed, like quickly find out how things are going, you know? It can be a little chaotic and it gets interesting. And that's what we're doing here. And it's more messy than what we have seen up to this point in Galatians. After God gave the promise of a child to Their names were Sarai and Abram at this point. We read this. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She was barren, no kids. So God made the promise, and up to this point, she is old and there is no child. So what's up with this fulfilled promise? Because it's not being fulfilled. She had a female Egyptian servant, whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children through or by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. I'm sure you can connect the dots a little bit here about what happens next. Hagar eventually gives birth to Ishmael. And as you continue to read the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, you realize the relationships all of a sudden get weird. Sarah became resentful. Hagar and Ishmael are told to get lost. And however, by the mercy of God, an angel of the Lord visited Hagar in the wilderness and brought comfort to her. So what do we have here is family drama. But you should know this as it pertains to Galatians 4.23. When Paul says the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, Paul is talking about Ishmael. In other words, Ishmael is not the son of the promise because Abraham and Sarah tried to force the issue. They wanted to take the situation into their own hands. And what happened? They created a royal mess. In this instance, we see, we see sin instead of faith. We see self-preservation instead of trusting in God's promise. We see self-reliance instead of divine dependence. The move Sarah and Abraham pulled off was utterly idiotic. It was just like, guys, God literally showed up to you. Um, Timothy Keller, uh, pastor, has been helpful as I've gone through the book of Galatians um, personally. And he said this. I think hopefully it's helpful for you. He said, by sleeping with Hagar, Abraham was choosing to rely on his own capabilities. He was opting to work and gain his son. He was acting in faith. But the faith he had was in himself, and not his own, and he as his own savior. Excuse me. We can pause for a moment, for a moment, and try to learn um, from their mistakes. Yeah. Sin makes a mess out of our already difficult lives. Our disobedience is an affront to a holy, other than and just God. I, I'm willing to bet. Um, Myself, that everyone here, myself included, can recall a time when your sin created a royal mess. You did something and everything just went off the rails. Your lack of faith or no faith of all, made life for you and others more difficult. Because of our sin, we do not deserve to, we do deserve to sit in a courtroom with an orange jumpsuit and with the key thrown away. We deserve just judgment and condemnation from God, because of our sin. I'm just going to pause for a moment and, and say something parenthetically. That, that is, there's a fundamental difference between realizing our own sinful nature, our, call it depravity, as opposed to thinking that we're all good and it's all good. That's not what the Bible says. Abraham and Sarah deserved all the judgment and condemnation from God. And just consider what their actions did to Hagar. We don't talk about that much when we read that particular section in Scripture. She was their servant, and they used her for their gain. I don't think it's a stretch to say that their actions in our day would put them into prison. So, sin makes a mess of everything. So you might be thinking to yourself, yes, I know sin makes a mess of everything. That is why I am here, to which I would say, hang with me, I will talk about the son of the free woman who was the the free woman who brought the promise, that's verse 23. Because what we are going to see in a moment is that despite our sin, despite our sin, right? God is faithful. God is still faithful. The story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar raises an interesting thought. Uh, There are is a lot of teaching, especially in this social media world, right? You can get on any particular social media outlet, YouTube. There's a lot of teaching that makes everything in the Bible all about you and me, right? You, 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 you. And on balance, some of this is okay, right? Uh, we're all objects of God's love and affection, so some of this is appropriate. But here's the problem. There are times when we read the Bible and first think of ourselves and not God, The Bible is first and foremost about God. For example, God was faithful when Abraham and Sarah messed it up. They tried to mess it up. God was still faithful. The faithfulness of God should be the primary takeaway when we read this story in Genesis. And as we've seen in Galatians, right? Your faith is not about what you brought to the table. Your faith is about a holy and loving God who broke in on your cold, dead heart and breathed life into you. Your faith is about what God has done to make you an heir to the promise. It's about what God has done. We were singing rejoice earlier. That's why we rejoice, because it's about what God has done through Christ. And so we rejoice. We sing, we dance, we leap we love in unexpected ways because God is faithful. And as we see in Galatians 4, the mess created by Abraham and Sarah is ultimately about God's faithfulness despite their sin. In Genesis 17, God reiterates his promise to Abraham and Sarah. They will have a child. From their child will come descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. And from their child will come the son of the promise. Don't miss this. God does not excuse the sin of Abraham and Sarah, but God is not going to allow their sin to thwart his plan and his promise to redeem his people to himself. God is absolutely sovereign over the situation. As you turn the pages in Genesis, we read in chapter 1, the son of the promise, Isaac, is finally born. Paul brings all that out in verses 22 and 23 as kind of the, uh, the cliff notes or the backstory of what's going on and what he is saying. Two sons who came from two mothers, but who had one father. What Paul does with this story is interesting. Um, He interprets this story allegorically. Um, Allegory is applying a a meaning to the biblical text that does not fit kind of the historical context. Uh, If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress by Paul Bunyan, that's a great example of a story written allegorically. Now, if you were to go to a seminary these days and take a class on interpreting the Bible, you will hear that you should never interpret the Bible with allegory. You just don't do that. Um, Paul didn't take a 21st century seminary class. It's likely he had a kind of a broader understanding of allegory than what we teach today. Nonetheless, Paul says he is allegorizing. Why? I think I think it is another way of Paul trying to get the attention of the. Galatians, I mean, think about it for a moment. Up to this point in Galatians, Paul uses one method of argumentation after another. It's like sitting with your buddy across the table for hours after hours after hours. And you're like, I'm trying to to convince you of of a bad decision you're going to make. Don't go that way. And here's one method of trying to convince you. Here's another method. Now he's going to use allegory. So it's just another tool in the tool belt to show the Galatians that their freedom in Christ comes through the promise and not through any other means. You can't contrive it. You can't work it up. So here's the allegory. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, I've seen worse allergization of the Bible than what Paul does here. But what point is he trying to drive home? It, taken in a narrow sense, Hagar, Hagar's son represents seeking salvation by works. And Sarah relying on salvation by God's grace. And again, despite her sin. According to Paul, Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. The old covenant says, thou shall and thou shalt not. While Sarah represents the new covenant, which is, I will be your God. I will redeem you from your sins. The new covenant is the gospel, which gives salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul Paul elaborates in verse 25, saying that Hagar is Mount Sinai, which is where God gave the law. Think Ten Commandments. Hagar also corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And Paul says that all the children from Hagar are in slavery, spiritually speaking. This is contrasted to the son of the promise from Sarah, who represents this new covenant, this, this heavenly Jerusalem. And in this heavenly Jerusalem, it's free. Paul's mention of Jerusalem probably would have been startling for Jewish Christians. Jerusalem, for the Jews, is what Paris is to France, Rome to Italy, uh, Moscow to Russia. There is an identity between the people and the city. Paul is saying that the present Jerusalem is meaningless. It is all about spiritual slavery. It's all about works with no grace. In contrast, the Jerusalem above is full of faith, hope, love, and grace. The Jerusalem above is free for all of God's children. The Jerusalem above is eternal, while the Jerusalem below just may as well burn to the ground. Paul's mention of Jerusalem should cause you to ask, what Jerusalem are you a part of? The contrast is is stark here. By way of allegory, you can see what I mean when I said that there are two categories of people in this world. You're either a son or daughter of the promise to Christ, or you are a son or daughter of Hagar, which means you still live in spiritual slavery. One son was conceived by faith, and you are a part of that spiritual family by faith. The other son was conceived through sin, and in sin and slavery, you remain. So here's how I would sum up Paul's purpose for highlighting the lives of Sarah and Hagar. There are two sons, two covenants, two Jerusalems, two mothers, but only one promise. Only one way to freedom, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 28, Paul turns another corner. After a robust teaching and specific theology, Paul wants, um, wants us to apply, wants the children of the promise to begin to apply things to their lives. Here's the passage, and I'm going to be very specific about how to apply Paul's exhortation to live in freedom. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. A a sub-point of the main point in our passage is Paul's use of the Bible. I mentioned it briefly. I'm going to go back to it right now. Paul says again in verse 30, but what does the Scriptures say? Again, Paul is literally writing the New Testament. So when he says that, he's, he's looking back and saying, look at your Old Testament here. What does the Scriptures say? He's constantly pointing the Galatians back to the Bible so that they can understand the gospel of free grace. Aside from referencing Sarah and Hagar, he directly quotes Isaiah 54-1 to bolster his point that Gentile Christians in Galatia are miraculously and supernaturally children of this heavenly Jerusalem. Paul also directly quotes Genesis 20, 21, 20, 21 10, excuse me, in verse 30. So what's my point? I can make several points of application, but here's one. If you want to understand God, you need to understand God's word. It's part of Paul's argument here. You want to understand God? You need to understand God's word. If you want to understand what it means to be justified before God, you will be helped by understanding the grand story of the Bible, which runs from beginning to end. If you want to get the most out of your relationship with God, you've got to have your nose in what God has given you, which is his word. it it can be astonishing how many unbiblical ideas are believed by Christians. Think about that. Kind of an audacious statement, I suppose. And I'm willing to bet most unbiblical ideas would be outright dismissed if folks just read their Bible. Just open it up and begin to Read. Heck, I'll go, I'll go a step further and say pastors and ministers are leading their churches astray by telling cute stories instead of opening the word. Paul used his Bible to combat against lies that were being spun in these Galatian churches. He used his Bible. He also used his Bible to show these church members in Galatia the truth, the truth of the gospel. We need to, with love, with love, got to underline that, with love, follow Paul's example. It is not unloving to show people from the Bible what is true, and what are lies. Let me say it like like this: I, d- I don't mind having discussions with another brother, sister in Christ, who have a, a different opinion on me uh, d- than me than the, some theological topic. Right? I had a great conversation recently with a friend who um, sprinkles babies, you know, pedo baptism. Great conversation. You know what we did? We had our nose in the Bible. We looked, we opened the scriptures together. Don't mind having a discussion provided we open the scriptures and put our nose in the Bible. Paul was radically biblical. Jesus was radically biblical. We need to be radically biblical. And the way to be radically biblical is to get this book into our minds and into our hearts. Here's another application point from our text. We read in verse 29 that Sons of the free woman will be persecuted by the sons who are in spiritual slavery. Ishmael's will always persecute Isaac's. This has always been the case, and this will continue to be the case until Jesus comes back. Christians in other countries and generations feel the effects of persecution differently for sure, We have brothers and sisters in Christ living in countries who are being persecuted by sons of Ishmael. There are Christians in specific countries who are being persecuted by governments. And if I'm being honest, Americans do not have a clue of what it is like to live in a place where life and death is constantly on the line. We don't. Just be honest. We don't. I'm I'm not trying to make you feel bad. God is sovereign over where you were born and where you live right now. So it's not a guilt trip, it's just reality. However, you should be aware of what's going on, what will continue to happen until Jesus comes back, so that you can pray and support our friends who are taking the gospel to hostile places while putting their lives on the line for Jesus. Lots of Stories just came into my head, but I'll, but I'll uh, move on. The Galatians knew about persecution. They lived in a time and culture where Christians were being persecuted by Romans. You know how Jesus died on a cross. Christians were being killed that way as well. Uh, likewise, the Jews despised Christians, and it didn't help that false teachers in Galatia were. We're teaching their works-based gospel, which is no gospel at all. Gospel at all, you could say that these agitators were were distorting Christianity. The Galatian situation shows us another aspect of how the true church is persecuted. John Stott helps us when he says, "The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers." But by our half brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers. And I absolutely agree with that statement. The greatest threat to the church is not the unbeliever, but the establishment, the hierarchy the false lies that get preached by somebody with a seminary degree who really doesn't know the gospel. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. After reading verse 29, I had to ask the question, why should Christians expect to be persecuted? Why does Paul say that here? Because the message of the free grace of the gospel, which is the message of Christ, is divisive, divides. Here's what Jesus said in John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If you're in the world, doing worldly things, you're going to have a lot of friends in the world. It's going to love you. It'll continue to feed you lies. But then Jesus continues to say to his disciples, But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is Jesus talking. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus says. Again, why? Because the gospel of free grace divides. It also gives life. It makes cold, dead hearts alive. But it does divide. And a lot of people do not like that message. And knowing that the message of the gospel is greater than persecution, Paul gives a poignant message of hope. He gives it to the Galatians. He gives it to us. Here's the last verse for our time. For freedom. Christ has set us free. Now think about what I just said about persecution. What Paul said about persecution. And yet he says, you are free. They may kill you, but in the end, have eternal life. You are free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Love that. That stand firm there is a command. Paul's like, stand (laughs) firm. I'm going to tell you right now. Do it. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not go back to, remember what we learned a couple weeks ago? Those elementary principles of the world the elements of the world, your former life, do not go back to that kind of slavery. Don't go back. Be free. The first part of Galatians 5.1, it's well known, it's quoted. You might have the refrigerator magnet. Um, Galatians 5.1 is a, is a transition verse in the book of Galatians. It's like a door that swings both open in uh, both directions. Paul is landing the plane on his theological... Uh, exposition of what it means to be saved by a holy and just God, and he begins to transition toward what it looks like to actually walk out your Christian life. And so in the weeks ahead, in Galatians 5 and 6, it's going to get really practical really quick. That's how Paul builds his argument in Galatians. For our purposes this morning, Paul puts an exclamation point on his argument. If you are a spiritual son of the promise, then you are free because of Christ. You do not need to fear persecution and death because when Jesus set you free, he invites you into his heavenly home, that heavenly Jerusalem. Freedom can cause us to sing and to dance and to love others in radical and unexpected ways. Freedom, spiritually speaking, is truly remarkable. It's truly remarkable. Therefore, God's word says, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm knowing that you can bank on the fact that God's promise is true. It's true. Christ is true. And what Christ offers will not be taken away, be taken away for those who have faith in Christ. Stand firm without reservation of what God has done and what God continues to do. Stand firm. But Pastor Sean, my life's a mess. How can I stand firm when I can't stand up to which I say? Stop trying to do it all on your own strength, but look to Christ. That's my problem sometime. I'm looking inward when I need to be looking upward to Jesus. Learn from the failures of Abraham and Sarah. For a time, Abraham and Sarah failed to trust God, but God is faithful, and his faithfulness eventually caused them to look up instead of looking in at themselves. So you too, Christian, need to stop looking at yourself as if you can solve the problems on your own. You can't. You know it. You've tried. But look to the one who is faithful he will cause you to stand firm. You will. And as you look up, you will begin to stand up. Christ will hold you, and he will keep you, and you will stand firm. Finally, Paul says, do not go back. So As you're standing firm, don't go back. Do not go back to the worthless idols of your past. Don't go back there. Don't go back to the sin that so easily entangled you. Don't go back there. Do not go go back to trying to make yourself right with God. Instead, stand firm in the grace of the gospel, which gives you freedom through faith in Christ. Stand firm knowing that your Savior does not give up on the ones whom he has called to himself. Christ didn't purchase your freedom. He didn't die on a cross for your sin. He didn't purchase your freedom so that you could go back and act like a fool. He purchased your freedom so that you, what does it say in Galatians? So that you could be free. That you can be free. And it's this message of freedom which will become highlighted even more In Galatians 5 and 6. Paul's wrapped up his theological argument. He's given one example after another. Now, and now, it's about to get real. What does it mean to live in Christ? What does it mean to live in freedom? Well, we're going to find out in the weeks ahead.